for just a few minutes, 2 Timothy chapter 1, as you're turning there, and I don't want to interrupt your page turning because I want you to see this verse, but as you're turning there, I want to take a poll here. Um, How many of you are perfect Christians? Nobody. I mean, we've got a lot of work to do in this church. Um, How about, how many of you pray enough? Nobody. How many of you read the Bible and meditate on it enough? Man, we're in sad shape. Okay. I, I didn't raise my hand either. Okay. All right. How many of you never worry? No? All right. Well, then everything we're going to learn here is good for us, including me. Um, it's just a reminder to us, you know, I think sometimes, and I know the world and the situation around us, and even our lives personally, may not be easy at this point, but sometimes we get in the flow of things and just get in the rut, okay? And we go forward, and day goes by, and other days goes by, pretty soon it's weeks, and then we look back and we're like, how did we get here? And the Christian life can be that way sometimes too. We get in the rut, you know, we think we're okay, we're doing the things we need to do, and we just plow ahead, not really thinking about it. And all of a sudden, we wake up one day, or God wakes us up one day with his word, and he's like, you've been missing something for a long time, and it's time to wake up and start paying attention. And I'm not saying that's how the church has been, or that's how you individually have been. I've gone through those times in my life, and... You know, the God brought me back to this uh, topic of holiness because I think it's something that people get in a rut over. They don't think about it. Christians, you know, we do our daily lives. We do our regular stuff. We go to church, and we just forget about the important stuff many times. And this is the important stuff, okay? So we're going to go to First Timothy chapter, or I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter 1 this morning. Just one verse to get us started. Because we've been looking at holiness and what God says holiness is. And in order for us to have the right mindset, we have to pay attention. Okay? We have to pay attention to what God's doing and why he's doing it. And first Tim, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, gives us an indication of why God wants us to be holy. We've looked at the call to holiness. But if you look at this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, talking about the Lord, it says who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. There's a lot in that verse. We're going to touch on it, but let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at what God has for us today. Lord, thank you again that you've given us your truth, that you have given us the guidance that we need, everything we need in life is right here. And we have your spirit to teach us, to guide us, to show us what these things mean and how we need to live them out. And so, Lord, today as we look at your word, I pray that you would just show us and help us to understand the purpose for which you've called us, not just in salvation, but in that call to be a holy people that you've given us as we've seen in the past few weeks. Lord, help us to understand now. Help us to appropriate these things in our lives, to let you do your work, And Lord, use me now during this time. Just give me strength of body, of voice, of mind. Give me your wisdom and your truth to proclaim, because we need to hear from you, not from a man. Lord, just use me as your instrument now, that your work might be accomplished, that your name might be proclaimed, and that you would get all the glory and praise for what you're going to do. And we thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at holiness, and over the past several weeks, we've studied uh, the greatest obstacle to our holiness, which is idolatry, putting something before God, and we spent some time looking at that. And if you want to redefine that, here is basically a summary of that. Myself is an idol, okay? Whenever we assume that we can do it, we know better, we've got it figured out, we don't need God that becomes idolatry in our lives. Now, that manifests itself, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining this, but that manifests itself in two ways. And they're both religious ways of idolatry, but 
One is called libertinism. The other is called legalism. We've touched on legalism. Legalism means I set up a bunch of rules, and because I keep all of these rules, that makes me a holy person. And we saw that's not how it works, okay? What we do does not make us holy. As God makes us holy, that defines what we do. So it's backwards thinking. But it's all about my terms. You know, we set holiness as a standard by my terms. I'm going to set the rules based on what I believe is true. And therefore, if I keep these rules, then I'll be holy. But then we apply those to other people and we say, well, you're not abiding by my rules of holiness, so you must not be holy. That's what legalism is, basically. And it's a salvation and a sanctification by works. Now, there's the opposite of that. And the opposite is people who reject legalism. And so they say, no, we're not bound to the law. We don't have to do all these rules. We're not rule keepers anymore. We're free from that. Christ has given us liberty. We're free from all of that law structure and law abiding and law keeping and all of that. And they're called libertinists or libertines. And basically what they say is because we're free from the law, therefore, our life is up to us. Now, as long as we kind of keep within the general guise of holiness, you know, we, I mean, we, there's no prohibitions against things, so we can do that. There's no absolute commands about these things, so we don't have to do that. And so they take all the black and whites, and they're really just a legalist liberated because they take the black and whites and they make the black black, they make the white white, and it does, there's no gray areas. The gray areas are all up to us. And so holiness really is about, again, making sure we keep the black things, the blacks, the, the ones that are, abs, abs, are absolutes. But everything else is up to us. And so they take liberty in Christ and use it to serve themselves and do whatever is pleasing to them. So both of those are exhibitions of really this idea of idolatry, making myself the standard for God's holiness. I'm the one who's calling the shots. It's Christianity on my own terms, whether it be a set of rules I have to follow or whether it be I'm free in God's grace and I can do whatever I want now within limits. Both of them are on my terms. And see, that's the wrong approach to holiness. And that's why we looked at last week, holiness starts with having the mind of Christ, And the mind of Christ gets rid of self. Self is eliminated from that equation. And in Philippians 2, we saw Christ's mind was defined by not caring about the reputation, not defending himself. You don't have to build up your own reputation and keep that in mind. He didn't care what people thought. He did what was right. It says he humbled himself. That ad, uh, the, the aspect of submission, total submission to the will of God and to the truth of God. He humbled himself to the purpose for which God called him. Even though humanly it didn't agree with him. And as I mentioned last week, he prayed just before he was betrayed and, and taken to be crucified. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But then he prayed, not my will, but thine be done. That's that element of submission even though i may not like it or enjoy it or even want to do it whatever god wants that's all that matters so he humbled himself he became a servant and his servanthood was shown in how he served other people not what he got for himself but he gave up everything literally to give other people what they needed that's that mindset of a servant and then finally he submitted himself even even to the point of death He gave up his life physically. He gave up literally everything from heaven, all of his divine prerogatives, and limited himself and his divine powers to become a human so he could experience what we humans experience in our lives. He knows everything we suffer. He's been through everything that we have to endure, and there's nothing that he can't commiserate with us and empathize with us in. And he died to himself, and he died physically on this earth so that we might gain what we need. And so that's that mind that begins this process of holiness is having that mind of Christ, giving up myself, not thinking about myself, not elevating myself, not worrying about myself, defending myself, protecting myself, all that goes away. And that's where holiness starts. So holiness then can be summed up, I think, in three ways. 
or with three elements. Number one, it's how we view God. We have to see his holiness, and we're going to see that when we get back to Revelation chapter 4 in a few weeks, where the angels are around the throne of God proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Okay? Seeing God in his person, in his character, we have to see him correctly. And we saw a glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 1 when we saw the glorified Christ, one who is our judge, and he judges sin, but he's also our protector, and he's the one who will bring us to a good end. So we have to see God correctly, and when we see God, then we will submit to him. There's that element of submission. But we also have to see ourselves correctly, and seeing ourselves correctly puts us in that mindset of becoming servants, of humbling ourselves, because the Bible tells us we're not supposed to elevate ourselves above what we really are. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, Romans says. Okay, so seeing God correctly, seeing ourselves correctly, and then seeing others correctly, and seeing others correctly comes down to seeing them as God sees them, not seeing them as our enemies, not seeing them as people who are disgusting that I don't want anything to do with, but seeing them as sinners who need God and need the truth and need to be exposed to the love of God through our lives. And so it's seeing God correctly, seeing ourselves correctly, and then seeing others correctly. And all of that plays into what God wants from us as he produces holiness in us. Now here, here's the point that I want to make. Because in discussions with people, and I've had discussions, lengthy discussions on holiness in the past. But in discussions with people, nobody ever challenges this idea of God calling us to holiness. I mean, it's there. We saw it in 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy as I am holy. It's very plain. Three times he says that in Scripture. So nobody challenges that. And yet the application of holiness is continually argued by Christians about what it's supposed to look like and what it actually means. And what's the purpose? You know, some of us think the purpose of holiness is to make us perfect people. That's not it. We're not going to get there. God has his own purpose for holiness. And as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1 this morning, verse 9, it says, Who, He has saved us and has called us with a holy calling. That's his call for us to be a holy people. All right? Everybody who is saved, everybody who is a Christian, God has given us a holy calling. And it says, not according to our works. Now that means our holiness doesn't come by what we do. It's what God does in us. But, according to his own purpose and grace. What the verse tells us is this. When God saves us, we don't get a choice in what we become after that. We have to give up everything so that we can become what God wants us to be. That's why he saved us. That's what the verse says. According to his purpose and grace. It's God's purpose that matters, not ours. So when we talk about this aspect of holiness, we have to understand what is God's purpose in holiness? Why has he saved us in the first place, and why does he want us to be holy? And this morning, I want to help us understand a little bit of that by looking at those three aspects of God's purpose How do we see God correctly in that purpose? How do we see ourselves correctly in that purpose? And how do we see others correctly in that purpose? And what is God's purpose in all three of those put together? So what is God's purpose for holiness? It comes down to three things, and I'll summarize them for you here. They're not hard. They're very simple. Number one, God saved us, and he wants us to be holy so that he will be glorified. That's the first thing. He's called us to glorify him. That's our main purpose. Number two is so that we can be sanctified. And number three, so that others can be edified. That's it in a nutshell. Now, we could go away and take those three things. Our purpose for becoming holy, for God creating his holiness in us, is so that God is glorified, 
so that we are sanctified and so that others are edified. And that is our purpose in life, period. It doesn't go anywhere beyond that. That is our life as Christians summed up in three succinct, very simple statements. But we've got to get a hold of these if we are going to become the holy people that God wants us to be. Because it's for God's purpose. Now, let's look for a minute at glorifying God. What does that mean? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, we're probably mostly familiar with this. It says, And whatsoever therefore ye eat, or, I'm sorry, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to what? The glory of God, right? We are to glorify God in everything we do. Now, I started out by asking some questions about you. How many of you were perfect Christians? How many of you did everything right? Okay, how many of you glorify God in everything you do? Okay, none of us. And there's the problem. That means we haven't reached the goal that God has for us. We haven't accomplished the purpose that God has for us on this earth yet. None of us glorify God in everything we do. But what does that mean? How do you know if you're glorifying God? That's the question. Let me give you an illustration, okay, about what is God's glory? What does this mean to glorify God? When Moses went up on the mount to talk with the Lord, to get the law, in Exodus chapter 33, we have an account where Moses is talking with God, almost literally face to face. And he says to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. That's in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. He says, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. So Moses goes to God. He says, I want to see the glory of God. I want to know what it actually is, what it looks like. And here's God's answer to him in the next verse, 19. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now we think, well, that's kind of an interesting answer. Moses wanted to see God's glory, and God proclaims his character and his attributes. He proclaims his goodness. He says, I'll proclaim my name before you. And the Bible says his name is holy. It's not just that he is holy, but his name is holy. And he says, I'll show you my grace. I'll show you my mercy. How does that show Moses his glory? Because the glory of God is summed up in all of his attributes, in its completeness. When we see God, his perfect nature, all of these perfections in his nature and his his characteristics, then we see his glory. God cannot get any better in any of his character. He is perfect in all of it. And that is the summation of his glory, the fact that he is perfect. So when we are to give God glory in everything, then what we're supposed to be doing is reflecting that perfect nature in everything that we do. And you say, well, we're not perfect. How can we reflect God's perfect nature in an imperfect body? We have God's spirit, don't we? Does God's spirit contain the essence, the completion of all of God's character? Absolutely. The Holy Spirit is God, just as much as God the Father is God, just as much as Jesus Christ the Son is God. They all have the same nature. They all have the completeness of the characteristics of God. They all emanate and show the glory of God. And if we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we have the substance to reflect the glory of God in our lives. And it's letting the character and the nature of God be reflected in us or through us. It's not about us. See, that's why Jesus said you have to die to yourself. You have to stop being yourself and start letting me make you what I want you to be. Start letting me reflect myself through you. That's what being a Christian is, little Christs, right? So when we reflect the glory of God, we are showing his character in how we live. Now, in doing that, we should be pointing people to God. You know, people come and say, hey, you know, you did a great job. Oh, man, you're such a great person. No, it's not me. I'm a terrible sinner. 
None of us are great people. We're all sinners. Romans chapter 3 makes that very clear. None are good. None are righteous. None seek after God. And that's us. But the only reason we're saved is because God has changed us. We have the Holy Spirit. And now that spirit can reflect the nature of God, the characteristics of God through our lives as we submit to him. Okay? So that's what it means to glorify God. To make known through your life that you're submitted to God's truth and God's will and God's purpose. And as we submit to him, then his character shows through. As we give up and just let him live. Like Paul said, I am crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul was saying, it's not me anymore. It's Christ. I'm just the shell. I'm just the tool. The master's the one that's actually doing the work. And that's what it means to glorify God. So we should be demonstrating the character of God as we live so that God can be seen in us by those around us. And when people look at us as Christians, they should see Christ. They shouldn't see me. That's what it means to glorify God. And as people look at us, and I've said this before, what they should say is, oh, that's what God must be like. Because that person is a follower of the Lord. That's a disciple of Jesus Christ. So that's what God must be like. Now, I'm not going to ask this question for you to raise your hand, but... How many of us live every day in everything we do so that people look at us and go, oh, that's what God is like? And as you, if you're truthful with yourself, as you evaluate even just one day, then we realize, wow, we are so far from the standard that God has called us to. There's so much work that he still needs to do in each one of us. Because his nature is not being reflected in us. People don't see God. They see Christians in quotes, who are living their own life, doing their own thing, going around hurting people and doing whatever they want. It doesn't matter to them. And yet that's not God. That's not who God is. So the question then is, if we're not exhibiting the nature of God, then what are we exhibiting? Go to Galatians chapter 5. I'll show you what we're exhibiting. And while you're turning there, let me make this reference. As we reflect the nature of God. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, in other places, he had said, I am the light of the world. So is there a contradiction? No. And I gave you this illustration in the bulletin. Think of the moon and the sun. God created the sun and the moon. The sun is the greater light that rules the day. It shines light. It gives us light and heat energy to keep us alive on the earth and then we have the moon at night right and the moon waits until the sun goes away and then the moon turns on its little night light now if you're a student of any kind of science you realize no actually that's not how it works okay the moon has no light of its own it's just a big piece of rock sitting up there and the only way way we can actually see the moon is when the sun reflects its light off of us off of the moon And it's a perfect example of what we're talking about in reflecting the glory of God. We are just a piece of rock floating where God has put us. And God has to shine on us his character, his truth, his love, so that that is reflected from us so that other people can see it. But there's nothing in us that has light. We can't generate goodness we can't generate mercy we can't generate love out of ourselves it has to come from god so if we're not having that then look at what galatians says verse 19 okay here's the contrast if we're not exhibiting the fruit of god or the the character of god here's what we have to be exhibiting in verse and i am in the wrong book i apologize let me get to galatians here i was in ephesians okay galatians chapter 5 We're going to start at verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Here's the answer. And here is the scenario. You have two choices. You either are reflecting the work of God, the character of God, which we call the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to get to that in just a minute. Or you're reflecting the works of the flesh, the nature of the flesh. No in between. You can't have a third choice that's either 
the spirit reflecting the nature of God, or it's me reflecting the, na- the old nature of the flesh. And so here's the flesh in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh of the, are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things, what does the end of that verse say? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul says there is, if these are characteristics of your life, if this is the pattern of your life, any of these, not all of them, any of these, you're not saved. Because you can't be saved and not reflect the character of God, even though it's imperfect. You can't live this way and call yourself a Christian. Now, very quickly, I'm going to define these for you. I'm going to go down this list because we look at these and go, well, I'm not, I'm not guilty of all that stuff. Okay? Um, it starts with adultery. Adultery just basically is unfaithfulness, right? Now, all of us have to admit that we're guilty here. Wait, 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 Pastor. I have not been unfaithful to my wife. Have you ever been unfaithful to God? That would be spiritual adultery. But Jesus goes farther, even in physical adultery. Remember, and he said, here's how you define adultery. If you've ever lusted in your heart after women, men, or the other way around for women, that's adultery. Guilty. All of us are guilty. He goes on, fornication. Fornication, the word is pornea in the Greek. It basically encompasses says the entire range of any kind of sexual sin, and specifically the thought life. Guilty. Every single one of us. How about uncleanness? Well, that's just general word for impurity or the opposite of holiness. And I asked you, how many of you are perfect? Nobody. Okay? Then we're all guilty. Lasciviousness. This is a specific word that means impurity of words, gestures, general conduct, which leads to and contributes to more uncleanness. It's kind of the thought process, those slips of the tongue, the little jokes that, oh, they were a little off color. I really didn't mean to say that. This is where it comes from. Lasciviousness. Now, we think, well, you know, all right, yeah, we're tactically guilty. But it's not like that's a blatant thing. That's not the pattern of our life. Okay, that's good. But let's keep going because we're not done yet. He says idolatry. We don't need to discuss that. We looked at that last week or two weeks ago. Okay, All of us are guilty of idolatry because all of us at some point in our life and probably continually put something ahead of God. So we're guilty. Witchcraft. This is the Greek word actually from the root from, for pharmaceuticals. It's the word we get pharmacy from, pharmaceuticals, medicine, drugs. Okay, So in here, what Paul's saying is witchcraft is not you know, casting spells and riding a broom and all of that stuff that we associate. He's saying this is basically uh, the, it's the other word for sorcery or a source of addiction. Being controlled by a substance. That's what witchcraft comes down to, the root word of it. Okay? Addiction to a chemical substance or controlled by medicine. Now, I want you to think about this one carefully. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but how many of you have ever thought or said, man, I just couldn't live without this pill or without this medicine or without whatever? Really? Really? Is our trust in the medicine or is our trust in God? I'm not saying we shouldn't take it. But our reliance should not be on it. And it's very easy to take that step from reliance to addiction. And we don't want to define it, you know, that way. We don't, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not addicted. I can quit anytime I want. And it's not just medicine. It could be any kind of substance. It could be alcohol. I mean, all of that fits in here. So he says witchcraft or pharmaceuticals controlled by chemical substances, addictions. Uh, The next one, hatred. This is hostility or enmity. And remember, Jesus said, 
if you hate your brother, you've already killed him. So we go right back up to murder here, if we hate our brother. But hatred is hostility or enmity. That means I have feelings of hatred toward that person for whatever reason. Work of the flesh. How about variance? In the King James, he uses the word variance. It means quarreling, debate, contention. I always have to be right. And so anytime someone contradicts me, I'm going to jump in, and I'm going to fight tooth and nail verbally until I can prove I'm right. That's what variance is. Quarreling, debate, and contention. How about emulations? The word emulations comes from the Greek word where the root means heat, red-faced. I think you're starting to get the picture. Intense envy or indignation towards someone. We use the word burning towards something. You know, when we associate that with lust, we associate it with fornication eventually, if we have that burning, but it can be for anything. Paul uses it in a general sense here, anything that we have an intense envy or indignation about, and it could be against another person, it could be against a situation, could be whatever, or against God, really. We envy something that we shouldn't have in God's will. God, how come my life can't be better? That's this word emulations. Okay, We envy something in an intense way. How about the next one, wrath? This is anger, indignation. It really literally means breathing hard. Now, again, I'm not going to ask, but I'm guilty. How many of you got to the place, especially if you've had kids, you're probably guilty, Okay, and you've tried to teach them, you tried to tell them, and over and over and over, and finally you just go, <sighs> right? Yeah, we've just crossed over into wrath. And that's why the Bible says that we're not supposed to chastise in wrath and provoke our children to wrath. We're supposed to discipline and love the way God does. Okay? Wrath. Going on. Strife. I'm going to go through these quickly. Contentious. Disunion. Partisanship. Strife is somebody who just likes to have turmoil. You know, I need some kind of crisis as I'm stirring up trouble in my life or in somebody else's life so that I have something going on that I can be upset about. That's strife. Seditions is causing division. Causing division against the brothers in the church. Now, I've known people who it seems like their point in life was this very purpose. You know, if you came in and said, well, you know, I'm... I'm really happy about the red carpet in the church that we go, I'm not. And you go, I thought your favorite color was red. Yeah, but not here. Okay, you know, they're looking for something to cause a problem about. That's sedition. Heresies. And this is pretty easy teaching, which will cause somebody to choose something other than God. It's not this blatant false teaching, oh, this cults and all of the stuff that we know to be untrue. It's anything that we do or any teaching which would cause somebody to choose something other than God or God's way. That's heresy. Murders. Obviously, we don't kill people, but what about killing people's reputation? What about killing people's character? What about killing people's emotion or or spiritual well-being because of our lack of love? Drunkenness, that's specifically controlled by the effects of alcohol, rather than, as Ephesians 5 tells us, being controlled by the Spirit. Revelings is just carousing, letting loose. And let me put it in the context of holiness. This revelings would be setting aside holiness for a short time for the sake of entertainment or amusement. That's revelings. Just letting loose. No more standard for me. We're going to put holiness on the back burner for now because I want to have fun. And then he says, and the such like. That means anything that would fit in any of these categories or anything, literally, that causes harm to others or causes harm in, the own, in my own process of holiness and sanctification that would draw me or somebody else away from God. Now, you want to... The specific here of the such like, how about anything that smacks of protecting my own rights and freedoms? 
Because that would be self, right? See, we're right back to idolatry. And Paul goes on, he says, Of the which I tell you before, as I also have told you in time past, they which do such things, and he's talking about habitually or as a pattern of life, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And you go, wow, am I even saved? (laughs) That's exactly the question that Christ wants us to keep asking ourselves. If I don't exhibit what I'm supposed to exhibit, am I even saved? Because that's a starting point. And then if we're saved, then we will want to fulfill the purpose of God. We won't be perfect. But our desire will be to fulfill the purpose of God. That's what salvation is. And so if this is the pattern of your life, you have to ask the question, am I even saved? Now, God doesn't want us to walk around doubting our salvation all the time. That's not the point. The point is God wants us to know that we are saved. We saw that in 1 John a couple weeks ago. He wants us to know that we have salvation in him. And the way we know is because this All of this, works of the flesh, becomes less and less and less in our lives as God produces his holiness in us. We are new creatures. Okay? But it's these works of the flesh, if they dominate our lives, this is what causes problems between people. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4 says that. That it's the works of the flesh, it's myself... It causes problems between people, and it keeps me from becoming the holy person to reflect God's character to other people. James 4, verse 1, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Yes, where, where do you think it comes from? Then he tells you, come they not even hence of your lusts, self, my selfishness, that war in your members, ye lust, ye have not. You kill, you desire to have, you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Why do you get in a fight with somebody? Why do you ever get in a fight with somebody or an argument? Because they don't agree with you. You want them to agree with you, and you're not getting what you want. And so the fight starts, and they have the same problem. They disagree with you, and they don't get what they want, so they fight. And we're going to fight. We're going to go at each other until somebody wins and somebody tramples the other one down to say, oh, yeah, see, I was right. That's our lust. And he said, and James says, you'll go so far as to kill people, and even killing people doesn't give you what you want because you can't obtain what you really want. You war, you have not, because you ask not. See, we want to try to get everything for ourselves. We want everything our own way. We want my life. And you can't go to God and say, God, I want my own way. God's not going to. I mean, he may let you have your own way, but you'll never be fulfilled in that. That's what James says. And it's just going to cause problems in other people's lives as well as your own. Verse 3 says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss or badly that you may consume it upon your lusts. God, I want to do your will, but first give me a million dollars and a nice car and a nice house and lots of friends and no problems in my life. Right? God, I want to be a holy person. I want to reflect your character, but make sure I don't get sick. Make sure I never go hungry. Make sure I'm not homeless. Make sure nobody ever treats me badly. See, that's that deal-making, right? Okay, God, I'll follow you if you do this for me. And James says, you ask not, or you ask, you receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. You ask For your own will, not God's will. And then in verse 4, he says, You adulterers and adulteresses, you know that the friendship of the world, that's the philosophy of self, by the way, is enmity with God. That means they're opposites, they're enemies. Selfishness fights against holiness. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We cannot become holy if we live for self. If the works of the flesh are what define us, Holiness is impossible, probably because we're not even saved. We've deceived ourselves into thinking, I believed, I believe in God, I believe the Bible, I believe that Jesus died. The devils believe and tremble, but they're going to end up in the lake of fire, and so is everyone who doesn't submit to God and let the Holy Spirit take over their lives. 
Now, the contrast, and here's the good news, Paul gives us right after in Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22. Okay? Verse 22. And it says the fruit of the Spirit is, and here's the contrast, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And he says, against such there is no law. It's not against the law to have these things in your life because this is the law of Christ. Now, what is love? Self-sacrificing desire to meet the needs of the one loved. Do I put others ahead of myself? All the time. Always. As a rule of life. Do I put God ahead of everything else I want all the time as a rule of life? See, there's my love for God and my love for others. What about joy? I shouldn't even ask this. How many of you are joyful about the last election we just had? Yeah, that's a hard one. But we can rejoice in the fact that God's still in control. See, we can find joy no matter what the circumstances are. We can rejoice with each other. Romans 12, rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. Peace. Now, peace only comes as we're reconciled with God. So you have to be saved in order to even begin to have peace. But what about becoming peaceful people? Or as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That means bring reconciliation between people. Not strife, discord, seditions, divisions, the stuff that we just read in, the, in the, the works of the flesh. Peace. He goes on, long-suffering. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. This is, and by the way, these are the characters, the, the characteristics of God that we don't have, but they're reflecting as we let God do his work in us. Long-suffering. We spent some time on this a while back. The word in the Greek is makrothumia. It means long-lasting patience with difficult people. Who did Christ come to seek and to save? Dirty, smelly, rotten, difficult people. And if we avoid them, how are we like Christ? Long-lasting patience with difficult people, even people who hurt us. There's that suffering part, right? We suffer long with these people for their good. Faith, he goes on, I'm sorry, goodness. Wait a minute. I skipped two or three here. Let's go back to gentleness. After long-suffering, we have gentleness. Gentleness is another word for kindness here. Some of you, if you have an NESV or an ESV, it may say kindness. Okay? The word for kindness is charis. The root word means useful. So if we're kind, we have to be useful to people. Well, I don't like being used. Then you haven't submitted yourself. I'm not saying being taken advantage of. I'm saying... Be willing to be used by God to be useful to other people. That's what kindness is, or gentleness here. And it exhibits itself in our gentle treatment of other people, not being wrathful, indignant, right? See the contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. He goes on with goodness. This is moral excellence. This is a dedication to holiness and purity before God. And then also showing that goodness and purity in how we treat other people. Especially that those that be of the household of faith, Galatians 6 tells us. Goodness, moral excellence, faith. The word faith here is actually a derivative of the word pistis, which is true saving faith. This means faithfulness. Are we faithful to what God has called us to in our lives? Do we have an absolute trust in God? And in that faithfulness, can we be trusted by others to be faithful in serving? And then he says meekness. There's that humility. Meekness. That's the the hallmark of Christ's humanity. Submitting to God, submitting to others. And then the last one is temperance or self-control. In other words, control of my flesh so that it doesn't rule me anymore. That's what that word temperance means. Keeping my lusts, my selfish desires under control so that's not how I act in response to them. And he says those 
are the things that there's no law against. And then he says, and they that have Christ, have, or they that are Christ, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. So you see the difference. The works of the flesh come when I live for myself, when it's all about me, when I don't care really about holiness no matter what I say. The fruit of the Spirit only happens as God kills us in our flesh and then reflects himself through our lives. And that's his purpose. Now, I've spent a lot of time because I want you to understand this is the main purpose of our lives. God has called us to holiness so that he can reflect himself in us because he is a holy God. And if we do not submit to the work he wants to do in bringing us to holiness, then we don't care about glorifying God. And what does Romans 3 say? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't care about glorifying God. That's what sin is defined as. So the first purpose of holiness is to glorify God in everything we do. And we just saw the picture, the contrast. Am I glorifying myself? Am I putting myself first? Or am I letting God, the sun, shine his light on me, just a rock floating in space, so that his character can be reflected in my life and how I live and how I treat other people? Okay? Number one, God's purpose is for us to glorify him. Number two, and I'm going to pick up speed, so don't worry, I'm not going to be here till Tuesday. Okay? The second purpose of holiness is to sanctify myself. Now, this means to be set apart for a specific purpose, okay? Dedicated to a specific purpose. Now, I'm going to give you an example. In my house, I have, in growing up, as I had kids growing up, it was more difficult. But we have several of my children who are gluten intolerant, okay? And then there's allergies, food allergies, and all kinds of things. And my hard head and my limited mind, I couldn't remember that all the time. I told you that's why God gave me my wife, okay? And so I would come in, and there'd be two pots of food cooking at the same time. They looked to me, it looked like the same exact stuff. And there'd be two spoons. And I'd pick up one spoon, and I'd dip it in and stir, and then I'd dip it in and stir, and everybody come running in, ah! Don't cross-contaminate! You know, and uh, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. So you know, I tried to stay away from the kitchen after that. But that's the same idea. Each spoon was dedicated to a specific pot because of the allergies that could be spread from that spoon. And that's this word sanctification. We are set apart, sanctified, dedicated to a specific purpose, which is what? We just said it, to glorify God. And so the sanctification process, God's setting us apart in salvation, but he continues to make us more like him so that we can fulfill that purpose is the sanctification process. So we're dedicated to God for God's purpose. Here's a scriptural example. In Exodus chapter 30, there was an anointing oil that God gave to Israel. Special anointing oil. It was only to be sprinkled on the priests and on the implements that were used in worship in the tabernacle. And God gave them the recipe. He said, mix this, mix this, mix this in these amounts, and that is the only oil that is to be used in worship. And then he went ahead and he said, now, because that is consecrated or dedicated for worship to me, you are not allowed to make this yourself and use it in any other application other than worship. And if you go and make it for yourself and use it other than in worshiping God, that person will be set out of the camp or put to death. Now think about that. It's just oil. But God dedicated it for worship to him. Now oil in the scripture is an example or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We have been anointed with God's spirit, his oil, as believers. And we are now dedicated to a specific purpose, to glorify him. And so in sanctification, God has purposed us to be sanctified or set apart to holiness, to reflect him. Okay? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, I read this Last week, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, 
talking about Christ's love for the church, that Christ talking about, that he might sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We are dedicated, sanctified for the purpose of becoming holy. That is our purpose. It's not just a bylaw in the process of becoming a Christian. That is God's purpose for us, is to become holy. And the sanctifying process is how it works. Quickly, there's two parts of sanctification. And I'll use that oil as an example that God gave Israel. First of all, it was separated from everything else. And so that separation from us is being taken out of the world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul tells Christians, he says, Wherefore, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. We are to have called out from them. That's what church, ecclesia, Greek word church, means called out ones. We are called out from the world. Okay? So separation is God's purpose. Jesus prayed in John 17 when he was praying for his disciples, I have given them thy word and thy world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world physically, he's saying, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, from the influence of the world. And that's what 1 John 2.15 says. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We are taken out of the world. That's part of the sanctification. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Avoid every appearance or form of evil. Don't even make it look like you're doing the wrong thing. Is an implication there. In Romans chapter 14, verse 16, let not your good be evil spoken of. Now, that doesn't mean you have to uphold your reputation. I'm doing the right thing. You can't come accuse me. Okay, that's not what it's talking about. It's saying, even in when you live for God in Christian liberty, and here's the real application, don't give people an opportunity to accuse you of doing wrong because you don't care about them. Lack of love. Okay, And if we can be accused rightfully of a lack of love toward anybody, we failed. We are guilty. I say, let not your good be evil spoken of, Romans 14, 16. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul says, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good morals. If we associate ourselves, if we continually expose ourselves to the philosophy and the influence of the world, we will be corrupted. And I've talked with Christians and had these conversations, and I I know at least two personally that have said to me, I'm strong enough in my faith and mature enough that it doesn't affect me. Baloney. It always affects us. That's why God called us out of the world. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Cleanse yourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And it goes on and on. I mean, I've got five, six other verses here. God has separated us from the world for his purpose. That's part of his sanctification process. We have to become separate. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, there's this illustration of gold. Anybody know how gold is made? Okay, I had some weird ideas about how gold was made when I was a kid until I learned the right way. I'm not going to tell you because you'll laugh and it's not even comprehensible. But... Um, when I learned how gold was, it's not made, it's, it's actually uh, produced out of ore, right? We know that now. They dig the ore out of what? Out of the earth. Oh, wait, they take it out of the earth. First Peter chapter 1, though we be tested with fire, we shall come forth as gold. They take it out of the earth, and then what do they do? They melt it down. They skim all the impurities off of it. So first they take it out of the earth, and then they take the earth out of the gold. That's sanctification. Separated from the earth, 
and then have the earth taken out of us. Now, I'm going to talk more about that next week. Okay, But God has called us to be sanctified, dedicated, separated for his purpose, not ours. And it has to be done as we separate ourselves from the world and as we let God take the world out of us. So that's number two. God's purpose is for us to be sanctified. Number three, the third purpose of holiness is so that others will be edified. God glorified, me sanctified, others edified. There's God's purpose. In Galatians chapter 6, I already alluded to this. Verse 10, Paul says, Do good to all men, especially those that are of the household of faith. So who's excluded from that? All men. Who are the people that don't fit in that category? Well, we want to make an exception, right? But God does not. So it says, do good, show good, show God's love to all men, especially those that are of the household of faith. If you can't start here... It's not going to happen out there. I was in a discussion with my son recently about some things that he had questions about. And I said, why do you think God gave you a family? He said, to teach me patience. I was like, that's a good answer. It's a good start. Okay, yeah, that's true. But it's more than that. It's not just patience. It's to learn how to love people who are hard to get along with. Okay? None of us have perfect families. We know. You go home, you shut the door, and all the smiles go away, and the knives come out, right? Now, we, we don't live that way most of the time. Okay? But that's what happens in families, and God has put us in those positions to teach us how to get along with each other and how to love our enemies, or people that we see as our enemies sometimes because we don't agree with them, or don't get along, or they're on my side, or she's looking at me, or whatever. Okay? And it starts at a young age. But that continues. We are to do good to all people, especially those that are of the household of faith. So our purpose as a Christian is to build others up. That's what God has called us to. And as a local church, here's the group that God, this is your family. This is your immediate family. And if you can't do it here, it won't happen out there. See the picture God's given us? Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 2. Let every one of us please his neighbor for the good to his edification. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, who's my neighbor? Here's your neighbor, anybody who needs help. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. The church edifies itself in love. That's our purpose, to edify each other. Romans chapter 14, verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace. I already talked about peace. And the things, therefore, wherewith we may edify one another. So edification is the purpose of us being together. It's not so we can find all the problems with each other and point our fingers and accuse and, and shun and you know, whatever. We're here to help each other, to build each other up in love. That, that's our purpose. That's what God says. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, use not liberty as an occasion for the flesh, myself, but in love serve one another. See, it's all about the one another's, and we forget the one another's because we're so concerned about ourselves. Our holiness and our salvation is not for my own spiritual benefit. I've said this before, and we have to get this in our minds and understand. Here's that change of thinking that has to take place. God did not save me so that my life could be better. God saved me so that he would be glorified, and through him being glorified, other people would be edified. And in that process, God is removing self from me so that all of that can happen. So it's not about me. It's about God and it's about other people. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. I already alluded to this as well. Ye are the light of the world. We are to reflect God to everyone else around us. And he goes on, he says, See therefore that your good works glorify your Father which is in heaven. If your good works only go to produce a better reputation for yourself, then you're wasting your time. We are to glorify our Father which is in heaven. And part of that is edifying each other in love. That's his purpose. 
So God makes us holy so that in living holy lives, we can bring others to God so they can become holy. That's why we're here. And it's not that we want people to become like us. We want people to become like Christ the same way we're becoming like Christ. But if we don't live like Christ, what are we teaching them? So God uses holiness in us to help other people become holy. Not holy like us, holy like he is. Okay? So there's three purposes for holiness that God has given us. Number one, to glorify him. That's the big one. We have to reflect his character in our lives and how we live. If we're not, then we're exhibiting the works of the flesh. Selfishness, lust, whatever you want to call it. It's me, not God. So number one, glorify God. Number two, to sanctify me as he separates me from the world and takes the world out of me. And then number three, to edify and build up others as I point them to the one who alone is holy. That's it. That's why God wants us to be holy. It's not so we can look like good Christians. It's not so we can be remembered for what we did for other people. It's so that people will see that we have a great God who loves them. Therefore, how you live each day must be such that everything in your life is pleasing to God and draws both yourself and others closer to him. And if what we're doing brings people away from that or apart from scripture or contradicts the truth of God, then we're not letting God fulfill his holiness in us. We're on the wrong path and we're living for the wrong purpose. So we as believers must be living for God's purpose and holiness. That's what we're called to. Glorify him, sanctify myself, edify others. And we come back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God wants us to be holy for his purpose. And if our purpose is something different than God's purpose, we're on the wrong path. Now, I'm going to stop there. Next week, we're going to look at this process that God uses us to make, make us holy. Because that's a big question. So, all right, what is God doing? How does he make me holy? I'll give you several passages. We're going to spend some time in James and 1 Peter, and we'll find out what God does in making us holy. And then one more week beyond that, and if it's God's will, we'll then apply all of these principles to specific practical areas of our life. What does that look like? If I'm trying to become holy, if I'm trying to submit to God's work in my life, what will it look like in my everyday life in the normal things I do all the time? I'm going to leave you with these questions, okay? Just listen because we'll touch on these in the next coming weeks. As we analyze the things that you're doing in your life right now, here's the questions we need to ask. Number one, does it glorify God? Does it show his holiness and character? Number two, does it draw me closer to God in holiness? Does it make me more like him? Number three, does it demonstrate my love and submission to God? Number four, does it demonstrate my love for others over my own rights and freedoms? Number five, does it clearly distinguish me as being separate from the world? Number six, does it help point others to God's holiness? Number seven, does it draw attention to me? rather than my Lord, or does it draw attention to God? Number eight, does it teach or represent the world's philosophy of humanistic thinking and reasoning, or does it represent God's truth? Number nine, does it give others an occasion to sin or violate their conscience? Number 10, does it give others an opportunity to question my dedication to God's holiness? And number 11, is it a result of my own choice over what God wants. See, we have to ask those questions because that's what holiness comes down to. Is my mindset affecting my living so that God's purpose is being established and fulfilled? 
We'll look further next week. Let's close now in prayer. Father, thank you for your word that you teach us all of these things. And Lord, it just as we get all of these little pieces that, about this issue that you call holiness, about making us more in the image of Christ, about emptying ourselves of ourself and filling us more with your spirit. Lord, just teach us day by day. Help us to meditate on this. I pray that we wouldn't walk out of here and just forget everything we've heard. Because this is what the Christian life is all about. So make it important. Help us to submit ourselves and help us to truly let you do your work in us so that we can reflect your glory in our lives that others might see and believe and come to you. Thank you for what you're going to do. We thank you for your goodness and your patience with us as even every day we fail in this journey and yet you're there to lift us up. So, Lord, we just praise you. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 372, Who is on the Lord's Side? It's a challenging question because the question is, who is on the Lord's side? If you're on the Lord's side, your purpose will be the same as his. If your purpose is not the same, then you're at enmity with God. So let's sing. We're going to sing the first, second.